Welcome to Jewish History with Rabbi David Katz, connecting the human side to Jewish history. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com. Hi, it's Thursday morning. Well, it's still time to get the um, Haftar podcast out to Israel and elsewhere. I'm going to try to do it now. And I got most of my, we had a very heavy schedule this week, but thank God a lot of it's behind me. Uh, today, the sponsor is from Israel. Uh, this podcast is being sponsored by my good friends, former student, Yankee Frager and his wife, Libby. They are from Baltimore, but now they're in, they made Aliyah, they're in Beit Shemesh. And he is writing here, they're sponsoring this in uh, memory of the recent, his, his, his grandmother passed away recently. Our dear Safta, Natalie Frager, that's Yehuda Frager's mother in Memphis, matriarch of the Frager family and major pioneer, he says, in the Jewish community of Memphis, in Hadassah, and many mich- missions, too many to enumerate. Very nice. And Safta, he says, passed away right before Hanukkah, that's correct, peacefully in her sleep. And, uh, an advanced age. And the Shama of Nechama Bas Herschel have an Aliyah, he writes, and she should be Zochet to inspire more Torah learn, learning and mitzvahs among her descendants. That's a very nice way of putting things. Because when we say Zechar Tzadik Lebracha, what we really mean is, um, from a rational perspective, that you hope the memory of the departed one will serve as an inspiration to those who are living to do good things, and then the memory will be a Bracha. Today we have a Parshas Ve'erup. I think you have the very um, historically controversial, but totally understandable prophecy of Ezekiel about Egypt. Uh, in this week's Parsha, Pyro is the bad guy. The Egyptians are messing over the Jews, and we're, we're proceeding through the ten plagues, as everybody knows. As everybody knows. Now, that means Egypt is portrayed in a bad light. And for that reason, they chose to make the Haftorah one of the, um, I don't know why Dafki Echesko, but anyway, um, one of the famous prophecies you find about Egypt. Yishayim uh, Echesko, especially Echesko, these are novies who um, have a lot to say, and their books are big, 50, 60 chapters, that kind of thing. And a lot of it is blasting the Jews for their sins. No question about that. You know, that's plenty. But it's also true that they hate the Goyim. And therefore, you find in a number of these Nevi'im prophecies of doom about neighboring nations in the Middle East. Couldn't happen to nicer guys. So, in the book of Yechezkel, for example, while he spends a lot of time blasting the Jews, mind you, Yechezkel is is, uh, at the time of the Churban by Rishon, okay? And uh, he was a, a Kohen. And he was what I called from the elites of round one, meaning, now listen closely, the history the history is a little bit confusing. Let's go for the point, to get some clarity. You had a guy called Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, at the time we're speaking about, time of Yecheskel, this is a hundred and some years after the ten lost tribes. No, there used to be two kingdoms, I think you know this, in Israel. 
the north and the south. The kingdom of the north was the kingdom of Israel, ten tribes. And the kingdom of the south was the kingdom of Yehuda. Uh, but over the course of time, the empire of Ashur of Assyria wiped out the north. So all he had left over was the south, the relatively small kingdom of Yehuda. That would be the area roughly, what I would say today, from Jerusalem, say Ramallah, down to Beersheba. That's about the area. It's not nothing. It's not big. This is what was left in the time of our hero. Now, um, the king of Yehud also messed up a big time. Which is chronicled in the uh, Bible. Now, uh, what happened was, now again, listen closely. We're talking about the Middle East over here. There are a bunch of small kingdoms, including the Jews. A bunch of small kingdoms, about a dozen. And then there were two great empires, A and B. One was Egypt, the other one was Babylon. Uh, without giving you too many details, by the time we're talking about, they had what they called the Neo-Babylonian Empire, and Nebuchadnezzar. He was the king. His father and then him. Now, uh, they wanted to dominate the Middle East. That's what you do if you're a country in the Middle East. So the question was, who will be the superpower? The small bunch of small kingdoms are always going to be there, they figured. The question is, who are they going to kiss up to and pay taxes to? Who are they going to bow to? So Egypt wanted for Egypt, uh, naturally. The Egyptians always consider themselves the best. And from the strategic position, if you know the map, as long as the countries near Egypt are um, small and weak, it's like a buffer zone. Nobody can invade Egypt. Now, on the other hand, you have Bavel, or what we call today Iraq. Uh, they conquered the rest of Iraq. And now they want to project their power into what you and I today call Syria, Israel, Jordan, and so forth. And these are the battlegrounds. Now, Nebuchadnezzar, he wanted to be the boss. There was a big battle in uh, called Battle of Carchemish, very famous, which Nebuchadnezzar smashed the Egyptian army. And the result of that, he said, I guess, the Egyptians get the heck out of here and go back to Egypt. I am the boss now of the Middle East. And I want all those dozen kingdoms, including the Jews, to kiss up to me, to kiss my feet, pay me the taxes. The Egyptians didn't want that, simply because they're the other power. And anyway, if Nebuchadnezzar occupies all the Middle East I just described, he'll be on the border of Egypt and he can invade Egypt. They didn't want that. And so, uh, for next uh, so and so many years, next 20 years, let's say, after the Battle of Carchemish, the politics was that Nebuchadnezzar has this huge army. He's demanding tribute and obedience from the dozen kingdoms. But on the other side, Egypt is saying, don't bait him. Don't listen to him. Don't kiss up to him. We'll help you fight him, and so on and so forth. Now, the Egyptians did this in a very cynical way, uh, because, which I understand, you know, in other words, from power politics point of view. The question is, if you're the dozen kingdoms, what do you do? The Nevi'im, like Yermio and Yecheskel and others, always said like this, don't believe Egypt. They'll screw you in the end. They'll leave you hanging. And um, in various metaphors were employed to get this point across. Don't believe Egypt. Instead, bow down to Nebuchadnezzar. He obviously is the one chosen by God since he defeated the Egyptian army at Carchemish. Right now, he's the boss. As Yermio puts it all the time, Israel was not, especially the small king of Yehuda, is not destined to be a great power. So you're not part of power politics. It's like I would say today, does Israel play a role in the Cold War between the Soviet Union and the United States? Not really, right? Not really. 
can't take on the Russian army. Right? They're just trying to, to duck and survive. And what does Israel care? By that I mean, as long as we have our own country, especially in the old days, they had a base of Migdash and so on and so forth, that's that's good. Unfortunately, what I just said was not listened to. The kings and the nobles who ruled the countries, uh, I'm talking about of Judah, the, the rich and powerful guys, they uh, allowed themselves to be seduced by the strategy of Egypt. The Egyptians bribed them, kissed up to them, maybe they sent them. I don't know what they did, but they're very good at that. You have to watch out because the Egyptians, are among the world's experts in the flattery and the seduction to get you to do what they want you to do, making you think that you're doing it for your reason. You know, it's good for you, but really it isn't. This is a constant theme in the Vim, including today's Haftarah. Don't ever trust Egypt. Don't rely on Egypt. And so, the hell with Egypt. Now, um, what happened, of course, was that the Jewish elites did not listen to the prophets. They um, intrigued with Egypt against Babylon. Uh, the Egyptians did not have an army that could beat the Babylonian army, as I told you before. And Nebuchadnezzar came down, and he smashed all these little kingdoms that tried to do this, including the Jews. However, it happened in two phases. First, round one, when it was Yehoiachin, and he captured city Jerusalem and uh, imposed a heavy tax on them and exiled the elites to Babylon. But he didn't kill them once they got there. And then Nebuchadnezzar put his own candidate on the throne of the Jews. That's what we call Tzitkiyo. And he said, keep your nose clean. You can be the king of Yehuda. Like I said before, if you're Jewish, do your Judaism thing, based on Middash, do your thing. Just remain loyal to me. Don't don't go with Egypt. And the prophet Yermio is always saying, take that offer. Now, I just told you, a bunch of Jews were carried off to Babylon. Our hero, Yecheskel Anobi, whose Haftor is today, he's one of those Jews. Right? So, during the ten years between the first exile and the second, meaning, you know, when Sikiel became the king, if he would have been smart, he would have followed Nebuchadnezzar's directives and simply not rebelled against him and not intrigued with Egypt against Babylonia. Because after all, what's the difference to the Jews? Either way, they're not going to be totally independent. So let's say, for example, I'm just making this up. Let's say you have to pay $10 million a year in taxes to a foreign overlord. What do you care if you send the $10 million to Egypt or the $10 million to Iraq? It's still $10 million, you see? So... Uh, and if you do it with Bavel, it's like guaranteed. Nobody wants to pay $10 million, but if you pay them the $10 million, then you can continue for the next year on your own without any trouble. You see? Nebuchadnezzar was so powerful, the Egyptians couldn't do anything. However, the rulers didn't listen to the prophet Yemio, and therefore the book of Jeremiah chronicles the slow uh, deterioration of the situation, ending up in Sidkio rebelling against uh, Nebuchadnezzar, and Nebuchadnezzar wiping him out. That's what we call, call Tishabah. This is the background of the Haftorah. Now, Yecheskel is in Babylonia, where he gets, and, and, he, and that's where he gets all his Nebuahs. Now, he is like the counterpart to Yermio, but Yermio is in Jerusalem. Yecheskel is in Babel. And Yecheskel is getting all these Nebuahs, seeing the impending doom. The impending doom. And, uh, of course, he foretells all this, and, um, and uh, you know, like Shabbat Thomas, I'm, I'm not, I mean, uh, Asar Batavis, 
and so on and so forth, and he's even told prophetically when Jerusalem falls, it's a sad book. Now, in the course of this, he surveys the Middle East, and he sees all the nations are anti-Jewish, and he predicts them all go to hell. It's a, a, a bunch of prophecies. And so, in the 20s, like chapter 20 this, 20 that, after talking about the, full, the, the, the stupidity of Jerusalem, I repeat, the stupidities of Jerusalem, which is caused by their um, arrogance and their propensity for Vodazar, he has uh, a, mass, a, a prophecy, Ammon is going to be destroyed, and then Moab will be destroyed, and then Seir and Edom will be destroyed, and then I'm about the Plishon will be destroyed, and then a long thing about Sor, which is the city of Tyre, which was a very powerful city in the ancient world, which was on the seashore, like a, in the harbor, you know, it's actually off the land, and was commercially very successful, like a Venice once upon a time, and he has a lot to say about them, and then about Sidon, so all these places will go down, so not only we Jews are going to be destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar and all that, but all their neighbors also, so don't rejoice. And then, in our half tower in chapter 29, he has the whole thing against Mitzrayim. You Egypt also going to go down. So the whole, what he's really saying is like this, I hate Egypt more than anything else, because you were the people who seduced us into making the revolt, you see what I'm saying? Which led to Chorban Beis Amidish, and destruction of Jews, and not a single Jew left in Israel. Now, it's also complicated, because some of the Jews run away from Nebuchadnezzar, and they end up living in Egypt, which he hates that also. So basically, what I'm saying is, if you look at the Haftorah that's coming this week, you can skip the first uh, two, three psukim, because they don't like to start on such a bad um, note. And so uh, the beginning is just uh, some from a previous uh, uh, prophecy. But really, in the third Pusik, it gets down to the stuff, and it's therefore 21 psukim of chapter 29. And he tells you, So here's a prophecy he got, I think, two days after Asarbatavis, I believe. In other words, uh, the siege of Jerusalem has just begun, and you and I know, and so does he, prophetically, that it's going to end up bad. And he blames the Egyptians, right? And therefore he says, I'm going to curse Pharaoh. Or God is telling him, Give the following prediction of doom uh, for Egypt. So what it means is, yes, Yerushalayim is going to go down, and Israel is going to be wiped out. Mamish. And we'll end up with no Jews in Israel. They're terrible. But you, Egypt, will not be spared either. You see? And therefore he says, uh, this famous prophecy, where he predicts a Babylonian invasion of Egypt, and a Babylonian devastation of Egypt, and the overthrow of Pharaoh, and all that, except he uses very vivid language, because Paro is called the Great Crocodile. You're the great crocodile that walks in the river, you know, Egypt that time, the Nile River, very lush. Along the banks, it's like a, a stickle jungle. And there are crocodiles and all this stuff. And you're the biggie, and you're the great crocodile, meaning you're the king, and you're also arrogant. You say, Lee or Sassini. Right? I made the river, and I created myself. Which means, you Egyptians, the culture in Egypt was that the pharaohs should exalt themselves in unbelievable ways, you know, to the point of gods and beyond. That's a disgusting from a Jewish point of view. No, it's the reverse of humility. And the Jewish way of looking at things, particularly from the Nevi'im, 
even the greatest king should say, I'm a garnish in the hands of Hashem. I'm a nothing. Right? Uh, you know, the, the greatest uh, of the human beings is, 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 is a bupkis compared to Hashem, obviously. But in the Egyptian culture, it's not like that. In these cultures, it's like Russia under Stalin or something like that. You're the great, like Korea today, North Korea. You're the greatest, you're the most almighty, you're the most powerful. And Pharaoh basically said, like, if I'm a god, think about this. If I'm a god, how was I born? Uh, now, they had ways of dealing with that, immaculate conceptions. They really did, really did. But for the plain Hamonam, I made myself, you know. In other words, I, I, I wasn't born in the regular way. I'm a god. So, uh, obviously, our hero is blasting that. And he said, And then he hears this very interesting uh, uh, metaphor. How do you capture... Uh, it's very good prophecy. What happened to the Jews? The Egyptians said, Rebel against Nebuchadnezzar, and we'll be there to help you. But it didn't happen. Now, to be very exact, and here the archaeologists are going crazy, trying to reconstruct what happened exactly, but to be very exact... There was an alliance signed between the kingdom of Judah on the one hand and, and Egypt on the other. The Egyptians said, we'll be allies and we'll help you in a war. The Babylonian army came and besieged Jerusalem. Uh, during the siege, the Egyptian army marched to the relief of Jerusalem. Nebuchadnezzar, however, uh, defeated them and then returned to finish off the siege of Jerusalem and wipe them out. So the Egyptians never did show up. And uh, what it therefore means, listen closely, is the Jews were left high and dry. High and dry. You went to war thinking you have friends. All of a sudden you show up, you have no friends. So you're left alone and isolated and abandoned. And so it's sad that the Jews found themselves, Lamaisa, um, alone facing the Babylonian army, which of course was too giant for them. And we went down. Okay? Well, Yechezkel says, this is going to happen to Egypt. You know, because if Jerusalem is destroyed, and Moab is destroyed, and I'm destroyed, guess what? You have no allies. And so when the time comes for Nebuchadnezzar to invade your country, because you screwed everybody else, they're not going to be there to help you when you're attacked. It's like, your own policy is your undoing. But the way he describes it is, I take a crocodile, I capture it, and I drop it off in the middle of the Sahara Desert. Suppose I hated crocodiles, <laughs> right? Suppose a crocodile hurt somebody I liked. I said, you son of a gun, I hate you. But I don't, just don't want to shoot it. That's too easy. Let's say I'm a sick dog, and I want to really take revenge on the crocodile. I'll pick it up, I'll put it in the box, and I'll drop it off in the middle of the Sahara Desert. The crocodile, which is a, a water mammal, you know, hangs around rivers. What's it going to do in the desert? Alone, in the middle of the dry, in the middle of the sand... That will perish, and not only that, now to what would really happen uh, if you put a crocodile in the middle of the Sahara Desert? These other creatures, whatever animals or whatever is around there, they say, "Ooh, here's lunch." And ordinarily, the crocodile, when it's its own element, is pretty powerful, but when it's out of its element and cut off and, and uh, deprived of its natural habitat, it has no power. It'll get dried up and won't be able to resist, and the other animals will simply come and eat it. Says, Mom, what you have in Nuraja today? Right? That's exactly what he says. He says, um, I'll read you in, in, uh, I'll read the English 
equivalent of it because make it easier for you. You're the great crocodile. I'll put hooks in your cheek. That, notice that's how you capture it and bring you, pull you out of the river. I'll cast you in the desert. Okay, you'll be left lying in an open field. You won't be gathered or picked up. I left you for the beasts of the field and the birds of the heaven to consume. So here's this big, powerful crocodile, but only when it's in its own habitat. And now when it's stuck in the middle of the Sahara Desert, the buzzards are flying over. Right? You see what I'm saying? I'll put uh, hooks in your cheek, and I'll pull you by your scales. I'll pull you out of the river, which means you'll be out of your habitat. I'll drop you in the desert. You'll be over there with some little fishies attached to you. But your fishies won't be able to help you because fish also die in this arid desert. That's where you will fall. Right? So this is a metaphor that Egypt will be left alone to face the Babylonian invasion and you'll be helpless uh, just like the crocodile in the desert. That's a that's a very interesting metaphor using the Nile and the um, habitat uh, culture of Egypt against it. You understand? So basically what he's saying is like this. Mitzrayim is doomed. Now he was referring to something very specific. The Babylonian invasion that he predicted was coming, which would devastate Egypt and crush the country. Okay? And crush the country. Now, um, he also says, now here's the problem. This is a hard nut, this Haftar, for the uh, historians and the archaeologists, because, at least the way I understand it, it's not my specialty, but I know some, uh, Nebuchadnezzar doesn't seem to have to invaded Egypt. You understand? Know um, we don't have historically any records Nebuchadnezzar invaded Egypt. Now, that doesn't mean anything because there's a lot we don't have in Nebuchadnezzar. We have a little bit, not a lot. I mean, really, we have a very small bit. There's something called the Nebuchadnezzar Chronicle and all that. Not a lot. However, um, it's quite possible it happened. Nebuchadnezzar was a king for 43 years. Okay? Like, I don't know, from 600 and something to uh, to, to 563. Basically, after Beis Amish was destroyed, assuming the normal years, I'm leaving aside the issue of, um, of uh, what do you call it, the Seder Olam and all that. Now's not the time to deal with that. Ordinarily, by regular history, you figure Nebuchadnezzar uh, was in 586, destroyed the base of Migdash, 586 BCE. So uh, let that be. What happened after that? Um, the following, at least as best as we can tell. Uh, he went on, once he took down Jerusalem, which was one of those dozen kingdoms that wasn't paying, paying tribute to him, then he went there tired, sore, which was on the seashore. It was a powerful uh, port city and had, you know, a lot of money, the mercenary armies and things like that. And it seems to be that it was a tough nut to crack, a lot harder. Sor, the town of Tyre, which today is a garnished nothing in Lebanon, not too far north of the Israeli border. Big Palestinian refugee camp there. Uh, this city of Tyre, or Tzor, was besieged for a long time, 13 years apparently, by Nebuchadnezzar from 586 to 573. If these years are correct, then what it means is he was he was conducting multiple campaigns uh, to suppress a bunch of uh, of these dozen kingdoms that weren't paying him tribute as he thought they, thought they should. So one was Yerushalayim. That's the one you and I care about because we're Jewish. <laughs> right? That's Tishavah. But also Tzor. 
And whereas Yerushalayim seems to have been besieged for, I don't know, a year, year and a half. They talk about three years, but I don't think they mean it really. I know this seems to be roughly a year, year and a half, as I understand it. Uh, but Tyre was much more powerful than Jerusalem in that sense. It had these, uh, it was not on the shore exactly, it was off the shore, uh, something like that. And I know Alexander the Great also had a lot of trouble trying to conquer Tyre. And what happened was, it was unsuccessful. Okay? Then the end, it was a very long siege. He obviously got, uh, Nebuchadnezzar obviously got um, obsessed with this. And uh, too much so. And uh, he spent many years after Jerusalem, uh, what shall I say, uh, taking on Tyre. But it wasn't, it didn't end the way he wanted to. I'm telling you, it's a whole long story. I don't want to just don't want to go into that. You know, he, he couldn't attack it with battering rams and things like that. It's like an island, you see. And so, uh, uh, without going through all the details, it didn't quite work. And therefore, he's plenty PO'd when it's all over. And he said, I guess, I'm going to take out Egypt. At least that's the way Yechesko portrays it over here. Uh, they used to believe that there wasn't even a siege of Tyre until these German archaeologists came up with some evidence. So it could be that they'll come with evidence about an invasion of Egypt as well. I'm serious. I'm not speaking plenty. And it certainly is describing the tale in our parsha because it goes on to say, right, after describing what will happen to the great crocodile and how it will be left over uh, as a bird of prey, you know, then it says like this, um, in Pasuk Yitzayim, a little bit later, he got another prophecy, which says, Nebuchadnezzar Melch Babel, Nebuchadnezzar Melch Babel, Nebuchadnezzar launched a whole campaign against Tyre, and it didn't work. Uh, every head was bald and every arm was worn, weary. Meaning, the army expend, uh, what's the right word? spent itself trying to conduct the siege. And he says in the Pasuk, it didn't work. There was no reward. Then the campaign was unsuccessful. So then what happened? He's like this. Nebuchadnezzar said, I'm not going to let this go to a complete waste. If I can't take Tyre because it's an island and all the rest of it, I might as well use my army against Egypt since we're not so far away. And it says, As a, as, as a consolation prize. You couldn't catch your tsar? How about take you Egypt? And they'll invade Egypt and steal everything that's there. They'll despoil and take the booty and all the rest of it. Egypt will be totally busted, destroyed. I, God, will give him, right? Egypt, uh, on purpose. I should also know Mashem because what they did to the Jews. Now, therefore, you have the. This, and like I said before, the archaeologists, historians are still this day trying to work this out. I mean, I, this is like a podcast for a separate thing. Josephus discusses an invasion of Egypt by Nebuchadnezzar, but the regular historical um, efforts don't do so. But we read this, so if this is true, then what happened was about approximately 15, 20 years, something like that, after the Khurm Beis Amigdash, which was provoked by the treachery of Egypt playing its power politics. At the expense of the Jews, the same Nebuchadnezzar that destroyed Yushalayim came and destroyed Mitzrayim. Okay? 
And what it means is that on that occasion, the Pharaoh, or Egypt, if you wish, was left like a crocodile in the middle of the desert. I mean, left to starve. Friendless, birds of prey. Uh, imagine the anguish felt by the crocodile. It was stuck in the middle, like, what the heck is going on over here in the middle of the desert? Uh, and it was all be tit for tat. You, uh, you did it to the Jews, and now it happens to you. Now, there's one part in the middle that's very weird. And you'll have to look this up and be minding yourself this on Shabbos if you are so inclined. And what he says is that the destruction that the Babylon in this part in, in our Haftar today, this destruction that'll be wrought by the Babylonian army when it invades Egypt, um, will last forty years. Okay, it's for forty years Mitzrayim will be a a shmama. Okay, now um, and he says. The Egyptians will have be scattered among the nations dispersed throughout the lands. Right? So basically, once again, what you did to the Jews will happen to you. But Asati is there It'll be destroyed even among other destroyed cities. So the same thing happened to the Jews, will happen to them. They'll be scattered in an exile among the, the Goyim. And then there's something weird. Then he says, "Kikom Hashem, Miketz Arboim Shona, Akabis Mitzrayim and Amim Hashem Avot Tishama, Veshavti Shvus Mitzrayim, Vashiyizal Peretz Pasros." Now, I don't know what this is talking about. Just like the Jews, I'll give you the Pashim shot. Just like the Jews will be in exile for seventy years and then return. You know, I know that. So the Egyptians will have something similar. In their case, forty years. After 40 years, they'll return. But just like the Jews, when they came back by Shani, we were a Mamlacha Shvola. You know and I know that the by Shani period, as in Nechemi, that sort of thing, the Jews did come back, no question about it. But they were nowhere near the great power they had once been in the time of Dabin Shlomo, or others like that. They were back in Israel, glad to be there, holding on barely. The adventures of Ezra and Nechemia, where the Jews are trying to hold on against the Arabs. They did it. So for some reason, and that's how we worked. And we were lucky to get a Bayashani back, but it wasn't great. And certainly from the political point of view, for almost the entire time of what you and I call Bayashani, the Jews were a province in someone else's empire. First under the Persians, and then the Macedonians, and so on and so forth. Later the Romans. Only with a very short period of the Hasmonean kingdom, after Hanukkah, the Hashmonaim. Most of the time not. So if I were describing Eretz Yisrael, the Jewish polity, uh, in the Bayashini period, when the Jews came back, I would use the language they, it says over here, Mina mamlochas tia shvala lo tisnasi yod al-goyim. Bismanatim lo duros goyim. The, uh, the, Jew, the, the, Jew, the Jews that were a low kingdom were not able to dominate anybody else anymore. Uh, because your your former status as a superpower is what caused all the trouble. Well, um, that's what happened to the Jews. He predicts it happened to the Egyptians. I don't know exactly what he's talking about. Right? I can tell you my best guess. I'll tell you my best guess. And that is that Egypt used to be run by Egyptians. Uh, this dynasty, that dynasty, and so forth. And once in a while you had the Libyan dynasty or the Sudanese dynasty, but usually run by Egyptians. But then, by the time Alexander the Great, 
uh, it was taken over by the Macedonians and founded the Ptolemies. Ptolemy 1, Ptolemy 2, Ptolemy 3, down to Ptolemy, I don't know, 18, 19, all the Cleopatras. So these were not Egyptians. They were ruling Egypt. They blended somehow or other in a certain sense with the Egyptians, but mainly they were Macedonians. And um, Egypt was not a small country. It was a powerful country under Macedonians, but it wasn't Egyptian anymore in the old way. Okay, Not in the old way. So the reason I mention that is, in some sense... It might refer to that, but it doesn't fit exactly. Uh, so if you try to get to history behind this, it's very intriguing. There's a lot been written on it, but nothing, uh, uh, what's the right word, uh, final, uh, because a lot of the evidence is still not there. But we get the general idea. And the general idea is Egypt, I'm talking about the Egyptian Egypt, was once a great and powerful nation. They used their geographical proximity to the Jews to manipulate the Jews. The Jews were dumb enough to listen. I'll tell you again, Yechezkel, Yermio, others warned over and over again in their books, don't listen to the Egyptians. Uh, it uses the uh, famous expression, Egypt is a weak reed. Now, if you lean on them and you break your hand, and it says in this week's part of that, right? It says, V'yadu kol yoshem etzeren ki'ani Hashem, yan heyosem mishenes koneh the basis row. Mishenes konemis, a weak reed. Now, a reed growing out of the water. If I lean on it, I, I've seen this in near Ocean City, uh, on Aztec Island. If you have a big reed reading out of the water, they're very sharp. And if you lean on it, they break and, and cut through your hand. Do you get what I'm saying? It's a tall thing, but it's weak. So if I make the mistake of leaning my weight on it, it will be too heavy, and it'll break. And, and it'll be sharp, and it'll cut through my hand. So instead of something to lean on, it'll hurt me. And that's exactly what he says. Besalsam b'chob b'kaf terotz. When you put it in your hand, it'll break, just like I told you. And it'll pierce the shoulder, or I would say in the hand, right? And you lean, it'll be broken. And it'll hurt you. So, uh, because Egypt did this, it'll happen to them. Now, the reason we read this off Torah, of course, is simple. Uh, this week's parsha begins the plagues of Egypt. So Egypt starts to go down. In a completely different context, no question about it. You know, you have the ten plagues at, at divine providence. But the basic idea is this powerful country ends up a mamlocha shvola and an eretz shmama. Because by the time you finish dumps by day, the economy of Egypt is, re is ruined, correct? When the hail falls, it destroys the agriculture. When the devil falls, it kills the animals. When the, you know, uh, like I said yesterday, when the lice hit, it wipes out the priesthood. And so on and so forth. So, I guess whoever's making Naftar, when he's looking for something that would somewhat parallel the events of Egypt in this week's Parsha, they found one in the book of Yechesco. And with that, I bid you all a good travels. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com <laughs>